0: The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia.
1: We have been witnessing in Japan, some extreme conservatives started to very clearly argue against what they call extreme LGBT rights. And I'm worried that after 2020 Olympic and Paralympics, there could be some backlash and we will have to be prepared to fight it.
2: Marriage equality is not the be-all and end-all of the intricate, complex issues around sexual orientation and gender identification in Japan. There's a lot of positives, there's been a lot of changes, there are a lot more people who feel more comfortable being able to express themselves, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best that we can do. In this episode, a look at the rights of the LGBT
0: community in Japan in the lead-up to the 2020 Olympics. Ear to Asia is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Over recent decades, there's been increasing recognition of LGBT rights in many countries, the result of both growing awareness and greater activism, which have led to countries passing laws supporting marriage equality and banning discrimination. Much of the change has been in the world's wealthy democracies, but in some, like Japan, there's still a long way to go. So, with Tokyo preparing to host the 2020 Summer Olympics and Paralympics, how is Japan set to meet its contractual obligations to the International Olympic Committee to ensure a Games free of discrimination against LGBT athletes and event visitors? What does it mean when a city claims to promote and uphold diversity? And in a country long ruled by socially conservative forces, will official efforts be more than just window dressing for the brief time the eyes of the world are on Japan for the Olympics? Joining us to discuss the state of LGBT rights and activism in Japan in this pre Olympic moment are Japan Queer Studies experts, Professor Akiko Shimutsu from Tokyo University and Dr. Claire Marie of Asia Institute. Welcome, Akiko, and
2: welcome back, Claire. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Thank
1: you very much.
0: Against the backdrop of this increasing global awareness of LGBT rights, where does Japan fit? Tell us about the attitudes towards the LGBT community in Japan, officially and unofficially, Claire, and even perhaps start with why we're saying LGBT, not
2: LGBTQI. Yes, of course. LGBT is perhaps the term that is being used the most for about five years now. There's a long history of activism and work around raising awareness to do with, for example, same-sex partnership rights and other rights, for example, transgender access to medical services and also the right to live as your gender. However, in the lead up to the Olympics, the term LGBT itself has had a bit of a boom, we like to say, perhaps in Japanese media studies, in that it features very prominently in media representations of issues to do with sexual orientation and gender identity. So that term LGBT has become a term that is used in that context in Japan.
0: And Akiko, can you give us a, a picture of the landscape when it comes to protections for LGBT people
1: and for the rights of LGBT people? It's important to remember that in Japan, we never actually had a law banning any sort of like a homosexuality or homosexual behaviours. And also, there have always been a certain amount of cultural, quote-unquote, acceptance, especially in a very restricted field of performance or certain kind of art field where transgender women, so to speak, were not only just accepted but sometimes highly praised having said that we also never really had a clear legal protection of the lgbtq rights we never really had a law banning discrimination based on sexual orientations or gender identities so where we find ourselves now is we are not specifically legally discriminated against, apart from the quite important part of the same sex relationships and the, the protection of the partnership. And also, part of the gender identification uh, how much you could actually choose to live by your own gender. But we do not sort of legally prosecute it just because being a gay or being a lesbian or transgender. At the same time, we are not protected when we are actually getting discriminated at workplace or even in educational system. So it's not so much about what's illegal, Mm -hmm. it's more about
2: what's not
0: even recognised in the legislation. Claire, can you sort of explain that a little
2: bit? There's a kind of a very contradictory conceptualization of Japan as very welcoming and tolerant. Now, tolerant is a word that has flip sides to it because tolerant seems to suggest that you are welcoming of difference, but tolerant can also mean that you're just kind of, you know, gritting your teeth and grinning and bearing any kind of difference as well. So on the one hand, there is uh, this kind of warm welcoming as long as you're not overtly different, as long as you don't kind of step out and begin to be politically active and perhaps demanding specific rights, then there's nothing really within the legislation that kind of inhibits you. However, there are a lot of pockets within the legislation that don't give equal rights to, for example, partners. And there's also a lot of gender issues. It's also very difficult, for example, women to live as individual, independent, working people as well. So there's a lot of kind of intersections of different axes of things that cut across an individual's life that, although there may be nothing that is saying you cannot do this, actually prevents them from perhaps acting in an independent way that they might want to. So
0: you end up with a situation where, as Kiko, you said that there's no official ban on on homosexuality. In fact, there's no definition of marriage as between a man and a woman, strictly speaking. One person becomes the wife, one person becomes the husband. But at the same time, there's no national legislation protecting LGBT people from discrimination and there's no legal recognition of marriage equality. It does seem rather contradictory.
2: Mm. It opens up a lot of pockets for people to actually be expressive and creative, but it also opens a lot of pockets where it's very difficult for people to talk about their issues on a day-to-day basis because the thing that you come up against is it's not as if you can't have sex with someone. It's not as if you're going to be persecuted for that. And I think that really shifts the discussion in a very strange way because then it becomes very difficult to highlight the difficulties. So homosexual axotomy is not, for example, illegal but that doesn't mean that people have the equal access to rights and responsibilities. So when we kind of try and explain it, we have to talk about a lot of quite complex things to actually have people understand a little bit about what it is to live in that situation, I suppose.
0: Akiko, that situation that Claire has just outlined, to what extent is that inextricably linked with how Japan defines family and the family registration system?
1: What is important in Japan, like when we talk about family, is the succession of the familial lineage. So, in an extreme case, this is really not about a moral or what one should do or shouldn't do about one's own desire or about one's own erotic or sexual or emotional partner. What counts is whether one leaves a son behind or not. Well, sometimes it's a daughter as well, but someone who would inherit and someone who would carry on the lineage. So that's the whole point about family register. The family register is something that puts a family before the individual and actually a nation before a family. So a
0: same-sex marriage simply cannot be part of that because they cannot produce a child.
1: Exactly. The same-sex marriage is not recognised because it is seen as disturbing that family lineage. Whereas as long as a man is having sex with his wife and having a kid, especially a son... Whether this man has emotional or sexual relationship with other men, no matter how many they are, outside the family, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't count at all. So that's the thing that sort of complicates the issue in Japanese situation because especially if you are a man, you are in a way free to do lots of things. But at the same time, you are very, very strictly required to perform a very certain task as a man or a child of the family. So you're free to do things
0: but not to have them legally recognised. And in fact, Claire, you've written about this family registration system as you write, it delineates the contours of citizenship, access to rights, privileges and obligations set by the state in all areas of social life. Is it going too far to say that this system is central to Japanese national identity, at least as far as the government sees it.
2: I think from my point of view, that's fairly crucial to say that it's... As a
0: non-Japanese person.
2: Well, yes, as a non-Japanese person, that it's quite central to the way that the society forms because the way that the family is configured and who is recognised legally to be part of that family is tied to the registration system. That being said, there are also possibilities of people moving in and out of that system through things such as adoption. And it's not entirely impossible for someone who was not born of Japanese parents to become a Japanese person in terms of becoming a national, and part of that is tied to the family register. It's only Japanese nationals that are on officially part of that register, and that's where it ties into the state in that kind of way. So the rights that are given to de facto couples, they are still not the same leverage that is given to legally married couples. So for some people, it's just important to actually have that marriage there, regardless of how it actually is between the people themselves.
0: So this registration system, is inherently conservative, is it not? I mean, as I understand it, you must register in the same name. So it doesn't say that the woman must take the man's name. Mm -hmm. It could be the man takes the woman's name, but there must be a single name as part of the family.
2: Yeah. Everyone on the same register must have the same family name. Some women in their business life retain their name, but they are technically required to change and have the same family. And some men do take on the wife's family name as well. So it's a small percentage, but that does happen. And that's part of the structure and the idea that Akiko was talking about before of the lineage. That's what's very important. So if there is not a son who can carry on the family, then the wife's husband may be called on to fill that role. So that's an important part of it as well. But it's really interesting because within that system itself, there are also the These very creative pockets where you can, for example, if you are Japanese nationals and you have a slight difference in age, adopt each other as well, which I've talked about. So you could actually adopt a
0: sexual partner. Yes. That is permanent though, isn't it? Even if the relationship does not survive, the adoption will continue to exist.
2: As it stands at the moment, if it dissolves, you can move in and out of this registration system. It's very different to the kind of papers that we have. If you have moved out, you can't re-enter it, but that kind of relationship of having been within a parent and a child relationship does not dissolve so that then you can become married. It's a very unusual way of getting around the structures. Actually, adult adoption is something that happens in other jurisdictions as well. It's not just Japan. It's just that a lot of people don't actually know about it. It's very
1: clever, though. <laughs> it is clever. I always love how clever it is. It's mm. inherently, like, completely disrupting the system from within. Yeah, yeah. following really the rules
2: but disrupting the system yes. at the same time.
0: <laughs> so if this registration system helps to explain some of the official views... How does that sit with the fact that nationally we don't have legality for so many things that are key, but at the local level, authorities have taken action? I think it's more than 20 municipalities that have granted legal recognition to same-sex couples.
1: How does that work, that the local can be so different to the national? One thing that I would like to stress first is that In order for this sort of like so many cities and towns to actually try to recognize the same-sex partnership, there have always been lots of people working really hard to get that happen because they think that even if it was a symbolic recognition, some kind of formal recognition might help people living with a same-sex partner. Having said that, The whole point of this local same-sex partnership is that it is really symbolic. It doesn't really have any legal bindings.
0: So municipal laws are completely subservient to national law. Exactly.
1: For example, like a city or a ward could say that, well, okay, we recognise you two as a couple. But it is just that they recognise them as a couple. And sometimes they might say things like, well, so you could actually apply for... Sort of like a public uh, residency,
2: yeah, public housing. Public, public housing,
1: public yeah. as a couple. Whereas before, sometimes same-sex couples are not allowed to even apply for it. So that's a good thing. But at the same time, it doesn't really recognize them as a married couple. So you really don't have inheritance rights. You do not have for example, partner's visa just because you're married and your city will recognize you as a partner if one of you is not Japanese national. In a way, it is easier for the local government to say that they recognize same-sex partnership because that wouldn't affect the family register. And the family register is the whole point. It is something that the conservatives, the moral and religious conservatives will do anything to protect, whereas they might feel offended and they might do something against the local recognition of partnership, but at the same time, they know very well that it's not about the family register.
0: So, so in other words, they can almost allow that to happen. It's a releasing of steam, if you like, right. and then just let that be, because it doesn't really fundamentally change the fabric.
1: In a way, yes. I'm not saying that's the intention of the people involved, and that's a very important distinction. That's not necessarily the intention of the people involved, but that's definitely one of the big effect that I think it's having.
0: Claire, though, if we continue to look at what local governments can do, if we look at the bill passed by the Tokyo Metropolitan, government just last year, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah. How does that fit into a national context where I think there's no protection?
2: It's really important to configure that also within the discourse around the Olympics and Paralympics as well. Because with the change to the Olympic Charter and the inclusion of sexual orientation as a term within the provision of rights. So it's added on top of for example race, ethnicity, region, gender and other things. And that was because of the situation around the Sochi Olympics and as a kind of the global environment, which was really kind of highlighting the need to think of LGBTQIA in that context more globally. So as the host city for the upcoming 2020 Olympics and Paralympics, the city is fairly much bound to honour that. And within that, making the city a welcoming city, a tolerant city, aware of difference, aware of diversity, one of the ways of doing that is also to instigate something that, has the flavour of being an anti-discrimination clause within the municipality of Tokyo, which is a huge city populated by millions of people, wide range of people with different interests, but for the actual Tokyo local government to push that through and to say we are a municipality that appreciates, recognises and celebrates difference. Within the local kind of political context, this is happening when a very vocal anti-LGBT voice and a very vocal anti-Korean voice, voice, South Korean voice, a very ableist voice within the parliament is also very vocal and advocating for greater attention to be put on rights claims from LGBT people, which she has configured as overstepping the mark. So the very localised context of the political context of the conservative right, making claims that it's all going too far, and the pushback from the, we are welcoming of diversity, we are the diverse, city, which is the slogan. And the rebranding of that for the Olympic and Paralympics, I think, is really important to kind of understand in that context. So what happens if someone takes that legislation and uses it as an opportunity
0: to challenge the status quo? If there is, for example, a same-sex couple that wants access to Mm -hmm. the the rights of property, that sort of thing, I mean, could they not use that legislation
2: to challenge? It is
0: there. That legislation itself Mm. is anti-discrimination.
2: Yes, but it is also based at the local level. So it's not the federal level. That's so
0: again, it goes back
1: to symbolic only. Sometimes it might work. But if you actually carry it in the court, and if you go to the Supreme Court, that would be the national level. So at the end of the day, the national government should be doing something about it. And only then the anti-discrimination legislation, for example, in Tokyo, might actually really work. So I'm not saying that's not effective at all, but at the same time, there is always this sort of like a big wall
2: that could stop the process at any time. One way of perhaps conceptualising that is the cases that have been bought by women so that there is no need to change their surname when they enter into legal marriage have consistently been rejected by the Supreme Court as recently as a year and a half ago. So it's very difficult that kind of let's campaign and change the legislation doesn't kind of work in the same way as it might work in Australia. That being said, there is at the moment across Across Japan, a uh, concerted effort to lobby for marriage equality. And there are court cases that are happening in the moment with couples bringing cases to their local courts for marriage equality. And that's kind of a a very clever campaign that's been orchestrated across the whole of the archipelago. And different couples in different municipalities have said, yes, they will participate in that to raise awareness, to test it out. To so see. even if they lose, it's more about exactly. putting, putting yes, the yes, issue on exactly. the agenda. Yeah, exactly. and also So seeing, you know, what room is there to move? It's still unsure what room there is to move. Some scholars think that, yes, this can be done and and others are a lot more critical and perhaps conservative in how much they think it's going to make a change. But there is still energy there and there are a lot of people campaigning around that space as well. Actually,
1: they are. I mean, some of them are actually winning some sorts of rights, at least at the local court level. For example, this is not a very encouraging or happy story, but some people with former same-sex partners, they had the domestic violence case actually recognised as a domestic violence, even though the partnership itself is not recognised as marriage. So the court actually recognised it in a negative way, rather than positive way. But it's better than not recognising yeah, it, than than exactly, yeah. it at all, exactly. And also they there was a case a little bit while ago where there was the visa was sort yes. of like a recognized as sort of de facto in the same way as the de facto marriage partner's visa might be recognised. So it might be turned around in the Supreme Court but we have actually one court decision that says that well even if you are not a legally married couple, if you are together for quite a long time, you might be able to get a partner's visa similar to something like a spouse visa for the same sex partner as well which could be turned down like I said but at the same time it's a huge step forward so they are actually gaining Mm. Something in a a court. You're listening to
0: Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Professor Akiko Shimutsu of Tokyo University and Dr. Claire Marie of Asia Institute. We're talking about the evolving state of play around LGBT rights and activism in Japan as the country gears up for the Summer Olympic and Paralympic Games, which will be held in Tokyo in 2020. Claire, you talked about uncertainty around how much room to move there really yes. is at the moment. So mm-hmm. let me ask you about the view. Of Japanese people mm-hmm. towards the LGBT community. What do, for want of a better way of looking at it, what do the polls tell you?
2: Well, we don't really have many polls. That's probably the first thing that's very telling. And Akiko and I have been involved in a lot of work in the field of queer theory, queer studies, and networking across universities in Japan to provide spaces for younger scholars and also for our own research. A lot of that is also tied up to getting an understanding because we don't really have much data about that. So one of the teams within that project has done some survey work quite robust. And there's an interesting kind of mix in acceptance. It's seemingly to be accepted, but also a feeling as as long as it's not kind of too close, as long as it's not my daughter, as long as it's not my son, and as long as it's kind of contained, there is this kind of feeling of it's okay-ness around same-sex relationships. In terms of transgender rights and recognition and acceptance. There is kind of a niche pocket of the Japanese entertainment, particularly on television, also in live theatre, that has always celebrated a kind of uh, personality who we might in Australia refer to as transgender, whether the performers themselves identify as that or not is something different. So people are kind of used to seeing that in the media, but not in the workplace, There's kind of like a division of where it is acceptable, consumable entertainment, and what it impinges on me, my family and my workplace is where things tend to get a little bit messy, I think, yes. While we're on transgender, the official attitude
0: towards transgender people is quite harsh, isn't it? I mean, gender
2: identity disorder. Yes. You must be officially diagnosed with that. Exactly, yes, yes. And there's also been campaigning around the right of an individual to their body. And unfortunately, the current laws have not been changed too much to enable people to register their gender without intrusive surgery if they don't wish it. But there are, you must not be currently married, you must not have children who are under the legal age, you know, they're not adults yet. And you must have had what is called in Japan, the reassignment surgery, so that you look as if you are the gender that you are claiming your identity to be. Of course, the lived experience is not, you know, whether you look like it, you have always been that For many transgender people, that is their life. That is how they wish to be appreciated and understood. But there are still very clear, set legal requirements and a process of going through a a huge medical intervention, which is very expensive, is difficult to access. Not all people want to do it.
0: Kiko, just returning to the issue of views of the Japanese community towards LGBT people, I did read one survey, and I understand what Claire says, that there really hasn't been a lot of surveys done. But this particular survey said 72% want to see stronger legal protections for LGBT community members. Of course, that's an incredibly broad thing that you tick a box for. What what exactly does that mean? And another finding was 78% expressed approval or likely approval of same-sex marriage. Do you those numbers which you know sit around the three-quarters of the population being in favor do you think that is a fair reflection or do you think that there is this real underlying conservatism and if it's over there it's okay but not too close to me
1: well the survey that Claire was talking about it shows very clearly that exactly as far as these things are happening to someone else Japanese people are quite accepting and tolerant but they do surely do not want their family members or sometimes even their neighbors or sometimes even their co-workers to be, for example, gay or lesbians or to be a transgender depending on how you actually put the question in a questionnaire and how you interpret it when you're answering it maybe yes like you know 70 something percent of japanese people are saying that it's okay it's it's okay they have the right to be happy together and stuff like that but it's they have the right to be happy it's not my son or my sister or my father it's always they so that's the Difficult things. Yeah.
2: And I think a lot of the what becomes reported in the English media is also surveys that have come out of a non-robust method of sampling. Yes. yes. So mm. it's really quite difficult because that's actually being circulated a lot through the media in Japan, the Japanese language media as well, which is what the team that was working on projects right. that we've been doing was trying to raise awareness about saying the, this may
0: not be accurate. This, this is not necessarily we okay. don't
2: have we have to to say that we don't really know. And until we can do really accurate sampling, then these figures, we have to treat them with caution. What about the LGBT community itself in Japan? To what
0: extent is it united in its own demands for
1: change? In a way, the idea of LGBT community actually, I think, entered in Japanese society somewhere around late 1980s to mid-1990s. Before that, we always had some communities and some activisms, but lots of the time, uh, gay men are working their thing, and the lesbians most of the time are working with feminists, if they're working. And transgender people back then, they weren't identifying themselves as transgender. So some of them were just working in a what Claire called the niche area and other people were working with gay guys. So from the beginning, it's not like we had the same agenda. And So many walks of life, many different yes, people. Yes, exactly. exactly. In the mid-90s, there was sort of like an effort trying to unite those different agendas and sort of make LGBT community and make some kind of political demands and stuff like that. Some actually have worked, some didn't. But the big thing is that around the turn of the century, we had this law regarding the change of gender identity in the family register system. That's something that Claire was talking about. You shouldn't have a child, you're not supposed to be married. And that was in a way a great news for some of the transgender people back then because they could legally be recognised as men or women as they wish. But at the same time, it was very, very clear back then that some of the restrictions were there to avoid having same sex marriage. For example, if you were born as a guy and if you're already married to a woman and if you decide that you want to change your gender because you actually feel like a woman. If that is allowed in the law, that means that the family register would have a wife and a wife. So that was never acceptable to so the you Japanese have to government. You so can... you have to divorce. And that's when Actually, I think the community was quite divided between the transgender line, not just transgender and gay and lesbian people, but among the transgender people the some of them were saying that this is not something that benefits us. Some were saying that we should take what we could. And I think both had, to some extent, points back then. But that's always the case, I think, in Japan. We had always very divisive issues, especially when it comes to like family register system. Again, because even now with the same sex marriage thing, some of the gay guys are very happy to have the marriage recognized, whereas some of the lesbian who have been working with feminists for a long time, they recognize marriage system itself as oppressive to women, especially in this country. So they do not particularly feel comfortable just being allowed in because the whole family system is actually oppressive to women. So there are always this kind of like a division between men so, and women. yeah Claire, there's, there's no clear political agenda then?
2: No, I think in the 1990s, mid-1990s, where there was a lot of cultural work that was done around, for example, we had the first Tokyo Lesbian and Gay Pride parade. It wasn't called Pride then, and it was lesbian and gay. There was a kind of a way of formulating it so that also women were on the agenda. Lesbian-identified women. And also, there was a lot of work within the women's communities around the rights of bisexual women and raising awareness and visibility. And also, around that time, there was a lot of work around transgender issues, gradually building up to the 2000s. There are things that continue today in that cultural space, such as film festivals, marches have graduated to different parts of the country, and there was a lot of working across perhaps differences, but a lot. Large section of what we might call traditionally the lesbian community also have affiliations with feminism, and a large part of what we might call the gay community has affiliation with a very masculinist patriarchal structure. It's like anywhere. The gender where you kind of associate your issues is very different depending on how you are, one, categorised and also how you identify. So there was work across divisions and differences in the 1990s. There were many things that emerged from that. But it's not that like there's one monolithic community. And the other thing is that political activism is also, in a certain way, kind of considered to be a little bit, if I want to use an Australian term, kind of like daggy, not cool, not hip, not kind of with it. If you're trying to be a cool, hip person living in a cosmopolitan city, you often don't want to be associated with kind of placards and calling for rights. How you kind of then move in that space can be a little different. You can be a little bit strategic around that as well. You can be cool and hip and have political agenda and do it in certain ways. So there are kind of layers of different things and there are non-political kind of impulses as well, consumerism, all kinds of things. In regards to women's communities, lesbian communities, lesbian and bisexual women's communities, the push of the registry in the way that it configures the family to survive as a woman without being legally married opens up a whole new area of challenges Also class comes into that, region comes into that. So it's not a one situation, everybody facing the same difficulties. But there are women who have great difficulties of being able to live their life as an independent woman because of the way that not being part of a family means that they can't access certain services. They can't get full-time employment continuing. Women are often expected to kind of go into the family and take on the part-time job roles. So women actually having careers, being able to explore that depending on where they are in region, you know, if they're not living in central large cities is also difficult. Understanding about that is not something that everyone who identifies as LGBT or whatever it could be shares. What about the role of the corporate community, about how big
0: business views the queer community in Japan? Do they see it as an opportunity? Are they supportive? Are they active in social issues like this?
1: Some of the companies would like to be seen as supportive. Basically, that means that some of the big companies, especially global companies, they like to put on a corporate booth in queer festival in Tokyo. But beyond that, I'm not completely sure. There are people working within big companies or small companies trying to raise awareness, trying to increase their rights in the company. But I do not really know many companies who are actually spending a lot of money to the community itself, sort of like helping out youth, or helping out LGBTQ plus people with, for example, disabilities, people who might not have enough income to support themselves when they're kicked out or whatever. So in that sense, I don't think companies are sort of that much supportive of the community. But at the same time, Like I said, global companies, and that also includes Japanese-based global companies, they would like to be seen as supportive of LGBTQI plus issues, especially outside Japan. So they would sort of try to keep up that front that actually opens up a small room for negotiation for the activists or the people in the community to try and get some money or get some kind of support out of the company itself. But at the same time, we are suspecting that after 2020, after the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics Games, the situation might change a little. So some company might start thinking that LGBT issues are a done deal and they might want to move on to something more cool, something more sort of recent, new, trendy issues. I want to finish off with a look at, I guess, the longer-term
0: impact Mm. of the Olympics on the challenges facing the LGBT community. But just before I do that, Claire, your view on the corporate perspective.
2: LGBT as a term really entered strongly five years ago through things like raising awareness in the corporate space, tapping into what were branded as markets, the rainbow market, was being sold as this kind of unexplored avenue that corporates can perhaps look to in a declining economic situation. So uh, there were this idea of markets opening up and being able then to perhaps provide services, different kinds of goods for people who may be LGBT. Now, the thing is that in that alphabet mix, there are a lot of different people. So what that actually means is quite strange. But at the same time, it's kind of pushed forward this idea that there is an LGBT group or there's someone who identifies as LGBT the whole spectrum which is quite interesting in itself so it enables people to brand and to sell in a quite ambiguous way to a niche market and a lot of people are quite happy that they now perhaps have greater access to rainbow goods and services so insurance companies opening up and saying yes we will recognize that you may have a partner different kind of social responsibility Groups within large corporations doing training for their employees. I mean, they were all kind of on the scale of good or bad, very good things. How far they will go in terms of legacy, the legacy of the Olympics and Paralympics is a big part of the Olympic story. But I think what we see again and again is that often it kind of fizzles out. Um, And without trying to be overtly negative... Having been involved for quite a few decades, booms come and they bust and then it's the next boom. It's a very strong, reoccurring theme within the Japanese media space corporations. The new thing will be the thing that sells. At the same time, though, we talked earlier
0: about the non-discrimination clause under the Olympic contract about the anti-discrimination law that the Tokyo government introduced last year. When you look at those sorts of changes, when you look at the boom, as you call it at the moment, do you think that in the long term, the Olympics will be positive or negative for advancing the rights? I mean, at the very least, does
2: it lift the focus? I think it does lift focus, and uh, raising visibility is often seen as a very positive thing. However, visibility if we're talking about it through a queer theory kind of framework visibility is also a very very tricky thing being seen and having rights acknowledged is completely not the same thing and I suppose the thing that Akiko was saying earlier is that these are not binding they have no legal binding it's the same with the anti-discriminatory clause from the Tokyo municipal government as well and I don't want to kind of sound too boring but if we go back and look at the uh, gender equality framework as well there are these things that are introduced, but they are non-binding. And so there comes a time where everyone says we have to kind of initiate more clauses, more steps, so that these are binding, so that if the corporations do not follow what is set out in these guidelines, there are some repercussions. That, if we look at the way that gender equality is gone, has not panned out perhaps the way that people might expect it to. So does
0: that mean that in the Olympic context, there is, in your view, a real risk that this could set... The fight for rights backwards because the national government can point to these local municipal changes, claim credit and avoid the really big questions of what needs to change at the national level.
2: I think because it's fundamental change that has to happen. It's something along the lines of in 2010 when a lot of the laws in Australia were altered so that all of a sudden, regardless of your sexual orientation or who you were in a partnership with, your rights were recognised over a sweeping legislative kind of menu. Of course, there were still things that needed to be done. But unless the same kind of thing happens, then the actual real change is, one, very difficult to see and, two, is maybe going to be difficult to argue for.
0: Akiko, do you think the Olympics positive or negative for advancing the rights?
1: I do not think it is outright negative, and I hope it is not. But at the same time, I can't be too optimistic about it because we have, like Claire said, we have seen lots of non-binding laws put up and then just almost like forgotten. One thing that I'm worried about is that with the women's rights with gender equality, when we had that kind of like movement before in the mid to late 90s in Japan, It really wasn't as effective as lots of feminist movements people were expecting. But what it did was it actually brought a huge backlash against women's movement and women's rights in general. We have been witnessing already some extreme conservatives started to very clearly argue against what they call extreme LGBT rights. That's the term that they call it. And that actually is, in a way, along the line with the current national government. They're not actually saying it out loud, but that's the line that the current national government has been taking. I'm worried that after 2020 Olympic and Paralympics, when the national government does not have the strong reason to put up the front, There could be some backlash and we will have to, I think, be prepared to sort of fight it.
2: Yeah, I think the backlash discourse is happening globally as well. We've talked a lot about marriage equality, but marriage equality is not the be-all and end-all of all of the intricate, complex issues around sexual orientation and gender identification as well. So I think that in that framework, there's a lot of work to be done. There are a lot of positives. There's been a lot of changes. There are a lot more people who feel more comfortable being able to express themselves in their everyday life in Japan, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best that we can do.
0: It will be absolutely fascinating to uh, to reconvene and to talk to you both again once that Olympic roadshow <laughs> oh, has left town <laughs> and to see just exactly <laughs> yeah. what the lasting legacy is. An enormous thank you to both of you, to Akiko for joining Ear to Asia and for Claire for coming back. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. It's been wonderful.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Our guests have been Japan queer studies experts, Professor Akiko Shimutsu from Tokyo University and Dr. Claire Marie of Asia Institute. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 16th of October, 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.